Ozone. Welcome to the Ozone Podcast, featuring Jaguars.com senior writer John Osher and Jaguars executive producer Dave DeCandis. This week, we're continuing last week's Ozone Podcast. We talked to Pete Crisco, NFL senior columnist for CBS and longtime Jaguars uh, radio voice has been on our broadcast. He covered the Jaguars with me for the newspaper for six, seven years when it first started. Last week with Pete, we talked about how Pete kind of got started in the business, tried to give people an idea of how he got to Jacksonville, what he did before covering the Jaguars, which he's been known for for a long time. And we talked about him covering the team in terms of its expansion process, in terms of how the Jaguars got to Jacksonville, which if you haven't heard it and are listening to this one, I would highly recommend listening to some of what Pete said about how he covered the team as it came to fruition, as the Jaguars got the team. I was working with Pete at the paper at the time, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about some of the stories. It's not an easy process covering expansion process, especially for this team, this town at the time. So that's a really good listen. If you have heard it, go ahead and listen to this one. We talked last week, Pete, about a lot about Tom Coughlin and a lot about the dynamic there. And I think people who go back and listen to that will be fascinated by it. But one thing that we haven't talked about over the years, even personally together very much, for four years when we covered this team, especially 96 through 99, we covered what I think most people would consider the glory days of the franchise. And I wrote a book on it. And for me, it's one of my better professional memories that time. What I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, I forget a little bit, I think, after 95, there was a feeling the team was moving in the right direction. But did we think that that 96 team had a chance to be good? Because I can't really remember it that well. No, we did not. We thought they'd be better. <laughs> we thought they'd be better, but we didn't think they'd be that team. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I actually went back. It was tweeted out and rewatched the Denver playoff game last week. Or, yeah, okay. Did you see it? Somebody tweeted it out, and they actually had the full copy. The NFL, the NFL put that on their site. It was available. Right. And I watched it. And the amazing thing is, is that's considered one of the biggest upsets in the NFL, and it was from a point spread standpoint. They dominated them after the first quarter. Dominated them. Did not punt. They had one of the most remarkable things in that game, and I know we talked about it. They got behind 12 nothing and then scored and kept the Broncos from scoring on five straight possessions of each team. It, it was an absolute domination, and you didn't feel it because they weren't supposed to be doing it. But when you look back at the – I've looked – I happen to have the uh, play-by-play sheet of that game. And I'm, I'm speaking to your point. It was remarkable how they dominated that game, and it was really not an upset if you watch the game, if that makes any sense. No, and, and that team was growing up. It grew, it grew up at the end of the year. And remember, they lost a ton of close games early in the season and weird games. They lost at New England. On, remember, Willie Jackson got tackled at the one-yard line or whatever it was on that, that Hail Mary. They yeah. lost in St. Louis when Brunel turned it over a bunch and they threw for over 500 yards and Willie Jackson didn't go down. <laughs> remember? He didn't Little he Willie won't go down. down. Yeah, <laughs> he wouldn't go down. Everybody remembers that game, Pete. They lost in New Orleans in the exact same way they did. So they were, they were there, but they were still four and seven. And then guys were growing up. They started getting better, and you could see it happening. And, you know, that line was good by the end of the year. You know, you know in that Denver game, people forget, that was Mike Cheever's start. Right. I mean, he, he was going to be a good player. If he hadn't hurt his back, he was going to be a big-time center in the NFL. And that, that line was playing well at the end of the year. So uh, I think they grew up. I mean, they, they look at the pass rush they had. Brackens, who in that game, by the way, I don't think he got a sack in that game, if I remember correctly. But any time he came in, he didn't start. But right. remember, the left tackle was Gary Zimmerman, who's in the Hall of Fame. The other guy on the other side is a better tackle, and he was better in that game, by the way. Uh, I wanted to specifically watch those two. Brackens went around Zimmerman a couple different times in that game. Clyde had his trouble with Zimmerman, but Brackens beat him up pretty good. 
And then they had Lagerman, who was a good pass rusher, and, and Smengi could rush the passer. And they had bodies. They had waves of guy Yurkovich and, and all those guys on the inside. They had bodies in there. And, and it showed up, and they played fast. And, and they were good on offense. So it really – when you it, it was a major upset. But the way the game played out, and when you look back on it in time, it, you know, it's almost like that Ohio State team that beat Miami in college football that one year on the end zone right. call that wasn't made. Everybody said, oh, my God, Miami. Well, that Ohio State team was loaded, too, when you go back and you look yeah. at it. So I think that's what, ha- that's what happened in the playoffs, and that's what happened. They got hot at the right time. The, uh, the play that's come to fascinate me out of this game, everybody remembers the Jimmy play. Everybody remembers the Mark Brunel play at the end. The Keenan catch, when I was talking to uh, players about the 25 seasons last year, it was Baselli who reminded me that – of the Keenan catch, and Tony said, go back and watch that catch. The Keenan catch for the touchdown is one of the best catches in franchise history. And you know what, though? You're right. But it's also a pretty damn good throw by a guy on the move. Remember, yeah. he had to get, he got flushed out of the pocket by Romanowski, I think, and got outside and made that play. Did uh, – and I remember being aware of how big that was. But – I don't think I realized when that was happening, maybe I hadn't covered the league long enough, how good that Jaguars team really was. The 96 Jaguars team, it was not in any way a fluke that they wound up winning double-digit games the next three years. That no. was turning into a good team. Yeah, they're not better, they weren't better than the 99 team, but, but they were starting to grow up that playoff run and should have went to the Super Bowl. They had no business losing that Patriots team. I don't think they would have beat Green Bay, but they had no business losing the Patriots team. That Patriots team was not better than them. No, but it, it, it just sort of felt the whole game that the Jaguars had woken up a little bit. There was some, I, mean, I mean, they made some weird mistakes, and it was almost like – The moment was too big it, for them. Yeah, and that's what it felt like. They had the weird fumble in the first half in punt formation, and – yeah, it just sort of felt like, whoa, are we, are we really supposed to be here? And I've never gotten any players to say that, but that's how it felt. And Jimmy ran the wrong route, and Willie Clay picked off Mark Brunel in the end zone. Jimmy <laughs> will never admit that, but he did. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you remember it or not, but after that game, we had to walk around. Looking for this, uh, looking for the car. Foxborough Stadium, looking for the car because Gene Frenette had parked in the wrong place and the tow truck had moved his car behind a dumpster. Remember how cold it was that day, too? And so finally, it probably took us 45 minutes, and finally I remember Gene walking around, or somebody walking around going, Gene, is that your car? And it had been moved, and it was behind a dumpster. How we ever found it, I have no idea. I remember that, and I remember how cold it was, because that place was a dump in a rector set. Yeah. I remember in the press box, it was, was, it was freezing. And people who don't remember that was one of the old AFL stadiums back in the mid nineties. There were still, we had gone from covering, well, mile high still wasn't that great. I mean, it was three no, old mile stadiums. The Jaguars dog. went to play in the worst stadium they ever played in by far though. You only remember it. Which one was that? Baltimore. Oh, I liked that though, because that was the old Memorial stadium. Yeah, yeah but it was a dump. It was a dump, but it, there was something about this was 96. The old clock, remember the old yeah, uh, timer the old, clock? Was it a long jeans clock? Is that what it was? A long jeans? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was, was a dump. But remember, it was that a was dump. Great. It was oh, awful. It was terrible. There was no doubt. But one thing I wanted to tell people, we wrote after that season, a couple weeks after, we got a call from a literary agent, and I'll use literary very loosely, but a call from an agent to write the book that became Jags to Riches. And Every day throughout the offseason, you would go work out, you'd go to Smoothie King, and then we'd sit there and in the office at my house in San Marco, we would write that book and probably did that, what, six, seven weeks? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then they, they it were became Jags to Riches. Yeah. And it was too late coming out. By the time it came out, the season had already started in 97. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. It was an impossible turnaround. It was, uh, that was, a, that was a tough turnaround. That was fun, though. And we got to remember a lot of stories in our heads yeah. and stuff. That was the good thing about it. 
Yeah, the thing I always, I always regret a little about that book is we were under the constraints of the TU at the time. And they really didn't want anything in the book that hadn't been in the paper, if you recall. Correct. There was a little bit of, so there was a limit in terms of time to how much we could go back and talk to players and really get deeper than we had gotten in the newspaper. And I've always kind of thought that it, if we could have gone back and spent some time reporting it, right, re-reporting it, that it, it could have been really good. Maybe for another day, maybe for another time we do that. But it, it was uh, – Yeah, we weren't allowed – they were they put so many restrictions on us that it was like, you know, they almost – remember, they almost weren't going to let us even do it. It was close. And, and I think that, again, speaks to it being such another time. Newspapers were different in the day. They were very territorial. I'm, I'm not saying these things to blame anybody who was at the paper then because the paper – it was a much different era for papers. And they ruled their markets and they, you know, they ruled the people who worked for them. And yeah, like we I think a lot of, we didn't include a lot of the stories, background stuff that we could have put in there. Right. We weren't allowed to write, but we couldn't put it. We could have been, the, you're right. We, if we were allowed to re-report that book and put a lot of the stuff that we had, we knew in that book, it would have been 10 times better. No question. How should that season be remembered? Right. It, it, it's clearly the season, I think, maybe even more than 99 than fans, the fans remember. But why did it happen? They were a bunch of young guys and Coughlin brought them together and they just kind of became mature or maturing at the right time. That's why that happened. Right. And you had a great mix. You, you had the young athletic quarterback, you know, the wide receiver turning into a star the other wide receiver who could make catches like and run routes like nobody else. Uh, you had a big physical offensive line with two star tackles. Uh, you had a running back in Nate Means who got hot at the right time. Uh, right. And then you go to defense. And, you know, I mentioned that in the first segment we did on front, the front was athletic as hell. And Brackens was a, an emerging star as a pass rusher. By the end of the season, he was a star as a pass rusher, uh, even though he's only playing situationally. And then you look at that, you know, the rest of those guys are growing up as well. So I think the one weak link of that team was probably the secondary. Right. But they were, that was a good football team by the end of the year. And I think you're right. It, it was how it kind of was the impetus to get them going where, you know, people expected them the next year to be good. And then they expected them the next year to be good. And then the next year to right. be good. And they weren't as good as they should have been. I don't think in 97 and 98, but in 99, that was the team that was clearly the yeah. best. I thought they were the best team in the league. The 97-98 uh, team, for me, I'll be honest with you, they kind of run together. And when I think about them and talk to players about those teams, because uh, for Jaguars.com, I do some flashback-type stories. I don't remember that many details and all kinds of runs together. What do you remember about the two years between? If I ask you about those. Yeah, I think I'll be honest with you, John. I think they underachieved in those two seasons. I mean, look, they won the division, right? They tied, didn't they tie with the Steelers that one year? And Steelers won the tiebreaker or something in, in 97. Yeah, they split the two. They won it in 98. And I'll tell you what happened they, in 97. In 97, they, they had to be, they were a wild card. And they ran into the buzzsaw, remember? Because they went to Denver and they're still running for 100 yards every back that they throw in there. Remember, they ran for over yeah, 300 that, yards on the ground. Yeah, that was – well, that was the game that we always debated, remember, because the Jaguars fell behind in that game. And they had come back, and there was a key play in the middle of the game that went the Broncos' way. And I thought they were going to come back and upset them again. And then after that, everything just – the fourth quarter, once the Broncos got going, it didn't matter who they, they had three. I think they had three backs that went over a hundred, didn't they? Or two, yeah. anyway. Derek Lavelle came off the bench and rushed for over a hundred in the fourth quarter. But the resilience of those years, I think, is what stands out to me. Maybe I had just never covered a team before enough to know. But looking back to get to the championship game, come back and keep improving year after year after year. I'm not sure the era as a whole, the 97 and 98 teams get enough credit for, you know, it's not easy to win in this league. It's not easy to make the playoffs. 
and those teams did it. There was some impressive consistency, I thought, from Tom well, keeping that thing about, going. Yeah, well, think about it. In 98, that's the first year they won the division. Right. So they won the division, and they were – they were the first expansion team, I think, to make the playoffs three of the first four years. Correct. And, Correct. And because so Carolina they, didn't do it. Carolina right. made and it so, twice and then dropped but off. Remember, they beat New England in the first home play. Think about that. They went to the playoffs two, two, two seasons and didn't play a home playoff game. You get, and played four of total. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Because they played three on the road in 96 and played one on the road in 97. Played a, right. And the lost. first playoff game was 98 when they beat uh, the Patriots here. Right. And then, then they lost to the Jets. The, when I look back at that four-year run, the overwhelming feeling I have was this feeling of inevitability. And I'm not sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm sure to phrase this the right way. But in covering it, it always felt like they were on the five-year plan, 95, 96, 97, 99. They were getting better. They were adding in free agency. They were adding in the draft. They were keeping core guys. And it was all building toward 99. And that 99 team for 17 weeks felt like it was fulfilling that. How good was the 99 team and why? Well, they, they, well first off, they had Fred Taylor on that team. It was special. I mean, the things he could do out of the backfield – because he scared the daylights out of defenses, and that changed it. You know, Natron Means was a nice runner, but he he was he didn't scare you. Fred Taylor right. scared people, so he defended the team differently. And, and not only that, Brunel had grown up a little bit. Jimmy was a star by that time. I mean, a star, one of the best in the league. And then you had those tackles in that offensive line. I think defensively, your Brackens by then was a star. And you know, in today's game, he would be he would. Be, 14 sack guy and uh, consistently so right you know, they had a person, correct that team had person that team had personality too you know the 99 team had you know fernando remember he had the personality they had yeah. more personality i think started the show coffin let him show it a little more and they played looser other than when they played the Tennessee titans i mean they played so tight against that team every time they played them they were tight no matter what did tennessee not cause that a little bit i think tennessee it was the classic case, and it wasn't exactly accurate either. Jacksonville was perceived as a pass team, soft, um, you know, not physical, where Tennessee was perceived as the pounded team with Eddie George, and they were physical on defense. Now, maybe that's the case, but Jacksonville could be physical when they needed to be too. I just think that there was something in their head when it came to Tennessee. It's something. Whether they couldn't tackle Steve McNair, they never could tackle Steve McNair, ever. Right. And, and, you know, because lining up and playing Eddie George run the football is not going to scare you. But when you got a quarterback and get outside the pocket and throw tacklers off them for 30-yard gains, that does. So, and plus, I think it got in their head. Think about it. They should have beat them the first time that year. Right. They clearly should have won the – I mean, not the opener, but the September game here. Right. Because, remember, it was pouring and Coughlin called for the pass in the end zone and Samari Roll picked it off. And then right. they took the safety and won by a point. Uh, then you had the game in late in the season in, in Nashville where they were basically had already clinched the, almost the number one seed in the number one the division. And it didn't really – they got ambushed by the tight end. I remember every tight end on the field caught eight passes against them. And I then, remember Frank Wycheck running down the middle of that field wide open yeah, all day. Wide open. Oh, and, and Aaron Kinney, I think, even caught a bunch in the game. It, That's they right. destroyed right, the Florida kid. And then, and then in the playoff game, I'll swear to this day that if they don't fumble at the end of the half, they win that game. They were they even as bad. Brunel threw that bad interception to Marcus Robertson right. in the end. They were the better That's team. And remember, it was fourteen seven, and Reggie Barlow fumbled, and they turned right. that into a field goal. And in the locker room, they started fighting. Remember the fight? Yeah. Who was it? It was uh, Larry Smith and got into it with Reggie Barlow and the offensive guys got into it with Larry Smith and the defensive guys. And and it was a fight at halftime. And they came out. And then when they got the sack, the sack is still an amazing – it would have been a touchdown. If they don't blow the assignment on the right side, Jimmy Smith is open for a 99-yard touchdown. The complexion of that game 
changes entirely. Instead, he gets sacked. They kick off Derek Mason, rips it. 23 unanswered points. They were never the same. They were never the same as a franchise. No. I mean, that's what's amazing, is it? But we'll get to that in a second. I wanted to ask you about the uh, – I just want to throw out some names of some players from that era and have you comment on them. Uh, first of all, Fred. You just mentioned Fred. To me, he's a Hall of Fame running back who never gets the credit he's due. I agree. One of the truly special runners the league has ever seen. When you think about it, he was 232 pounds and ran away from people and was strong and tough and could catch it. I, I still, you know, to this day, one of the great – the Ravens team that set the scoring record for defense – they the Jaguars blistered them that year. Remember for thirty six points, and it wasn't yeah, in that Jimmy game. caught two hundred. Right. Yeah, but remember the one game where Fred Taylor lined up against Rod Woodson and ran by him for a ninety yard was eighty yard touchdown reception or whatever it was. Yeah, remember that was that? Fred's rookie year, and he caught a seventy five. It was seventy five or eighty, and just ran by Woodson. You're right. Yeah, and then, and then and then they did that to them the next year and what 2000 that was right they destroyed them and, right. and they were a good team that year but fred was remarkable in what he could stop and start and cut and explode out of the cuts and again 4.6 4.5 per more i think it was an eight straight season per carry there aren't a lot of guys that have done that and that that's why he's truly special the only Knock on him is in my mind is the touchdowns, but we know why that happened because James Stewart got all his touchdowns. They took him out. <laughs> Stacy Mack. And so did Stacy Mack. It's still, believe me, I bring that up with Fred. It's still a, a point of contention with him. He doesn't like it as well as should be. Uh, Jimmy Smith for three years, he was as good as anybody not named Jerry Rice in the NFL. And in fact, those numbers he had for that three-year span are comparable to Jerry Rice. He was one of those guys when. You talk to the corners around the league, he was so strong that if you put your hands on him, he'd get him off him and he'd run by you. The fear when they line up. Like, I work with Bryant McFadden, uh, played for the Steelers, and he, you know, talking about Jimmy, and he said everybody, every corner in the league feared Jimmy because he right. was so strong. And remember, he didn't go over the middle that much. Uh-uh, hardly at all. Yeah, so that tells you how great he was as a receiver on the outside. He beats you running two routes. He ran an out, and then if if you guarded that, he gets he he run the go. He get his hands on. He run the fade. Yeah, and, and you know what's too amazing is it's it's sad that it was cut short because Jimmy Smith legitimately had a chance to be a Hall of Famer. If he plays out his career, he has a chance to be a Hall of Fame receiver, which would have been an incredible well, story considering where he came from. Well, what's remarkable about that if he plays it out. Or if he plays his first three years. Right. Because he didn't play until in Jacksonville. He was in, in, in 95, he didn't play until what? He didn't play almost at all in that season. Then in 96, when they cut Andre Risen, he became the starter. Well, he was drafted in 93, right? Right. And remember, and he had so the he first two years of the Cowboys. And yeah. he only played, right. So he didn't really start his career until four years after he was drafted. So it's a and remarkable. Had, I mean, and Jimmy will be the first one to admit now he had, a, he had substance abuse issues that, throughout his right. entire career. And, you know, was play, able to play through it and play with it and was star with it. But eventually it caught up to him when he you know, got in trouble with the league. So, um, you know, I still to this day, and I like Jimmy a lot, but I remember I bumped into Jimmy after he was suspended and he came over to me and he said, come on, Pete, you know me. You know, I didn't do that. And I said, Jimmy, I know you from covering you. I don't know anybody. I don't know any of you guys, right. what you do in your own time. And right. uh, it was sad. And, and Jimmy has turned his life around, and, and I'm happy for him. And I will always uh, enjoy having covered him. He was always no stand. Doubt. He'd stand up. Remember, he'd always show up. One thing about Jimmy, he'd show up after games, good or bad. I wrote the first big story in the Times Union about Jimmy. And it was when he probably two or three weeks after he had signed. Didn't know much about him because I'd been covering colleges. And he had just signed as a street-free agent, remember? And you told me, you said, John, you need to do a story on Jimmy Smith. And, and I didn't know who he was. And the story at that time was basically how he had been sick with the Cowboys and was trying to restart his career. And that was in 95. So that was, it, it was a year and a half away from him being anything good or not. But 
he truly started from nothing when he got to the Jaguars. Ron Hill, by the way, who worked in their front office, had to convince Tom Coughlin to take a look at Jimmy Smith. That's how that happened. Right, right. And and, uh, remember his mom was sending out clippings to everybody trying to get him a job. Yeah, he was a a great player, a great player. Keenan. One of my all-time favorites. Still is to this day. I loved interacting with Keenan, good or bad. Uh, You know, I always joke with Keenan that he was that the happier receiver when he caught seven for 120 rather than when he caught two. And if he got seven for 120 and they lost and he caught two for 17 and they won, he was happier when he caught seven for 120. <laughs> you, you and me would both agree on that. There's no doubt about that, right? Yeah. And it wasn't, I actually, we recorded one of these with Keenan a couple weeks back. It wasn't that he was selfish on that front. Because when you say that, that makes it sound like he didn't care about winning. He cared about winning, but he cared so intently ab- ab- about the craft, about being great. I mean, it's common today for people to talk about players who play with a chip on their shoulder. He played with a chip that he never forgot. So there was something in him that, yes, he wanted to win, but he wanted to contribute and he wanted to matter in it. And you know what I'm saying? Like I never got the impression he didn't the, care about winning. Competitors, because he made himself into a player. He was nothing. Right. And, and, and I always say this, people ask me who are the best route runners you've ever seen. And I say, uh, Isaac Bruce was one of them. And Keenan McCardell is the other one. Those two, yeah. could, you know, Steve Largent was a great route runner, but those two, Keenan McCardell, I, I can remember sitting in the team meeting room doing a story with him talking about how to run the post corner because he was great at it. Guys barely even run that route anymore. He was great at it. And I think him being able to teach that is shows off with how the wide receivers have grown up a little bit in Jacksonville. DJ Chark, you can see the difference in DJ Chark because of Keenan. And Keenan was always that guy who worked at it. Um, my favorite Keenan – he would remember, you remember this, he'd sidle over and go one and one A, right? And we'd go, yeah, maybe more like one and two, Keenan, but it's a good two. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, it was interesting in the last podcast when I was talking to him, him and Jimmy are obviously will be forever linked. And we talked a lot about just what an incredible fate or whatever it was. These are two guys who became, I think, uh, one of the best receiving combinations in NFL history, although you'd have a tough time convincing people of that. But if you look at the numbers in terms of when they played, and, and they literally both came from nowhere. Neither one of them should have been in the league at the time. They had the talent to be it, but there were both many reasons why they shouldn't have been in the league at that point. Keenan didn't start reaching potential until he was six years in. But they pushed each other, and I'm not sure that without the other one, either of either one of them would have had the careers they had. No, without question. They, I mean, it's it, they they complemented each other perfectly, perfectly. I mean, when you look at it, Jimmy had 862 catches, right? I mean, 862 catches. Yeah, it had 883 between them in their careers. I mean, you've got to look long and hard to find duos that played as long together as they did that put up those kind of numbers. You know, Marvin Harrison and, and Reggie Wayne, they did it. Um, but they're considered one of the best receiving combos in the league. Yeah. Right? And, nope. and they also played in a little bit of a different – like the 90s were not the mid to late 2000s in terms of how – of how often people threw it, it was a little different by then. No, Bruce and Holt, they 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 mix in there. Sure. Yeah, uh, but but they're in the conversation. You're you're right though, John. They're in the conversation, and 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 when you look at it, particularly when you, I'm just looking at Jimmy's number. Jimmy had 95. He did nothing. So at 96, he did half a year. So he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seasons where he played 16 games. Eight. And the only year in there, there's a streak with Jimmy, and I'm not looking at the stats. The only year he wasn't over 1,000 for like an eight- or nine-year period was the year he only played 12 games. Yeah, he went He, 12, he, he went was 1, a remarkably consistent, productive player in this league. 
Yeah, he only started nine games in 96 and had 1,200 yards receiving. He went 1,200, 1,300, 1,100, and 82. These are 1,636, 1,213, 1,373, 1,027, 805 when he was hurt, 1,172, and 1,023. That's pretty – and then the yards per catch, too. It was 15, 16, 15, 14. Uh, He had the one year was 13, 14, 9, 15. I mean, yeah. I mean, incredible what he did in terms of the numbers. And that three-year span I always talk about is 116 – for 1,600, 91 for 1,200, 112 for 1,300. The best part to me about the 99 season with Jimmy, and that was his best season. That's when he caught 1,600 balls or 1,600 yards. In November of that season, our editor at the TU made me write a what's wrong with Jimmy Smith story. Yeah, because he only had like, – he was struggling, remember? Yeah, there was something going on, and I remember having to go to Jimmy and say, hey, Jimmy – Here's what I'm having to write. I got to ask you about it. And he gave me a look like, what? But, I, I, and it again speaks to the kind of guy he was. He understood what was going on. I wrote it. He didn't like it, but he still worked with me on it. So, well, uh, good guy. Well, and the, the story was actually, when you look at it, he went two for 18, three for 21, six for 62, eight for 89, four for 77, seven for 52, which is probably when you wrote the story. And then he went nine for 220. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then 10 for 124. Remember at the end of the year, he went 14 for 165. Yeah. What happened after that? There was more than just the cap. Well, the cap was a big hit, but bad personnel decisions were also involved. You know, I go back to the, you know, we talk about the Titans and, and they couldn't cover the tight end and Tom panicked and he wanted Randall Godfrey, remember? Right. And Randall Godfrey signed with the Titans. So who did he end up with? Hardy Nickers. Uh, yeah, Hardy. That's right. Hardy. He, was broken, yeah. he was a broken down old man by then. And, and so that, those kind of moves coupled with the cap crippled them. The cap getting out of hand, it crippled them. Leon getting hurt in 2000 crippled him a little bit too. Remember, it was, was a first early practice in training camp. He went down for the year. That's always the point that I think about it. I wasn't there. The paper had sent me to Miami because uh, this is still in the day where the NFL writer wrote other stories there. And I remember you calling me or something. Hey, Leon got hurt and he was out for the season. And I never played again, I don't think. Um, and there was something about that. It was just whatever magic, it felt like the ascension. It had been an upward graph before that, and it was never the same after Leon got hurt. And I know that's too simplistic, but it just... No, he, never, he never played again. He never played again after that. Remember the Ravens right. signed him. Right, signed with the Ravens, but never worked. It, it's no, he a, never is that um, – and I will sum up with a few more questions about that era because it, it, it fascinates me. I think there's a lot of people who are listening to this now that we think of that time because we were young and covering it. But there's people listening to it who all they do is read about and watch YouTube videos. But um, aside from not winning the Super Bowl, which that's what you got to do and you have to get there, that team doesn't get credit for being a really, really good team for an extended period in this league. No. I mean, it had helped that they had all those draft picks in the first year. Let's be honest. Right. Where they have two in every round, John? I mean, think it about was, that. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and for every one they hit, they blew one. Right? Wasn't that what it was? True. It was Baselli, which is and James Stewart was the second first round pick. He wasn't bad. No, he was okay. But if you but if you draft James Stewart in the first round, and then four years later you got to draft Fred Taylor in the first round, then you haven't done it right. That's the way right. I always. Okay, Brian right. DeMarco was a washout. Second round, Brian Schwartz could have been good, got hurt, and is never the same. Chris Hudson. They chased that safety position 80,000 times after that, so including the next year when they picked Mike Logan. So he never worked right. out. 
Rob Johnson ended up being a work, working out for him because he drafted Fred. He ended up trading him to get Fred Taylor and Donovan Darius. Then the rest of that group wasn't so good. But ironically, the seventh round pick that year, his son is now on the team. Curtis, it's amazing, isn't it? And it really is. You you know, one of the first things you have to do when you get back in there and get to talk to Cassius Marsh is tell him about his dad's first mini camp. Remember that? Remember when the, he was screaming and yelling, you can't cover me, you can't co-. Remember that? Well, then you wrote the story when Curtis uh, talked about how talented he was. Right. Because he was talented. And you wrote what he said, and the other players were mad at you for writing what he said, remember? Yeah, and then they said, wait till we put the pads on. Right. He ended up right. becoming a coach, too. He was a good, he was a good guy and a talented player. And he was a good. He was fun to be around. But like you know, everybody never talking about the fifth round pick that year. He never lived it down. They picked Ryan Christopherson before they picked Terrell Davis. Right. Yeah, it was not a great draft outside of Baselli in terms of guys uh, staying around. So no, and 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 you had two picks. I mean, it was just, and and so I think that kind of stuff started to show up in '99. And you know, did they ever solve certain positions? Like, I think Mike Cheever getting hurt really set them back. He's probably, to me, Pete, the – like, every franchise has their what-if guy. And I know he played center, and he only played for a short time, so he'll never be remembered by the masses as such. But him and maybe Tavian were the two what-if guys of that era. Well, when you think about it, John, that, that 96 draft was Hardy, Brackens, Cheever, Beasley, first four picks. Barlow was the fourth-round pick. That's a right. good draft. Cheever got drafted before Beasley. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a good draft. I mean, we, you looked at on That was a really good draft. You get Hardy, Brackens, Cheever, and Beasley and Barlow in your first five picks. That's a good draft. But Cheever getting hurt kind of set it back. Right, because he was on his way to being an all-pro. I don't know that he'd have been Baselli, but out of their draft picks for linemen of that era, he was the guy. He was a second-round center or third-round center. Was it second round? So, uh, he was drafted in second round, yeah. Yeah, it, so that's a premium pick at center, and he, he was on his way to playing like it, and that would have really solidified because they went out – Went out and had to find a new year later. Remember they? They drafted. They also started blowing. They started blowing. They weren't blowing the first round picks because Tom was good with the first round picks. They started blowing picks on like James Hamilton, Cordell Taylor, uh, Jonathan Quinn, Larry Smith, the 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 pre Anthony Cesario, the second and third round picks who should have been guys that were ready to take over when you had cap issues and ready to yeah, and then you in. had to sign guys to replace those guys. You had to sign free agents to replace them. So Right, like in and, 99. Think about this draft in 99. Fernando Bryant, who ended up being a good player. Larry Smith, disaster. Anthony Cesario, God rest his soul, disaster. Kevin Landolt, disaster. Jason Kraft was okay. Marlos Leroy. I mean, it wasn't a good draft. Yeah. yeah. They were always a perfect example of a team to me, Pete, that if you hit in the first round, you can, and if you have a quarterback, you can make everything else okay because those premium positions matter. But if you miss too often, it, it it's tough to do it when you never hit outside the first round. I remember the one and year they went a long time so that for more receiver help. They drafted those last three. They well, you drafted Barlow, but then they drafted Doring Jones and Span. Remember that in late? You, yeah, you think one of them would end up being a player? Yeah. Yeah, Doring stuck around a little while, but just not here. Yeah. So. Then it just ended. In 2000, it just ended. That was the end of it. It started unraveling. Yeah. It, 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 it was it – was, uh, it's always been interesting to me because the – it was almost like that first four or five-year period. That was how long it was meant to last. From a personal point of view, you know, you left in late 2000. I left in 2001. But – that four or five year Jaguar period, probably because I'm, I'm colored by being around it, being so young, but I'll always think of that as, you know, probably the best time that I've had covering the NFL. 
and where I learned the most. And I look back and think, boy, what a unique time it was to cover. And that's why whenever people criticize Coughlin to me, I sort of step back from it and think, you know what? Say whatever, say whatever you want about the man, but he was the blood of the franchise at that point, if you follow me. Oh, there's no, it was, no question about it. That 2002 team, and you know it, that was one of the best coaching jobs, and people still around the league tell me that because that team was yeah. terrible. Terrible. Yeah. And he got six wins. Yeah, I was with the Colts by then. They were in the same division. And the Colts, at the end of that season, were playing the Jaguars with the possibility of the playoffs at stake. I, I think the way it played out, the Colts had already clinched. But they were just starting their run. It was Dungy's first year, and they were trying to get in as a wild card. I think they clinched it on like a Saturday victory by somebody else or whatever. But I can remember Polian and a couple other people at the Colts that week. The game scared them for one reason, because Tom Coughlin was coaching that team so well. If it had been anybody else, they would have thought they had it in the bag. But I heard from the Colts people that week, Pete, the same thing that you heard around the league that year. It was a it it was a decimated franchise in terms of talent, but he was still coaching. So yeah, the Colts beat uh, three or thirteen that day. The the weird and I think what happened at the end of that game was was a current Jaguars player development uh, guy Marcus Pollard. I think he caught the winning touchdown for that. He did with two minutes remember. left. But it was. It was such a strange thing for me, Pete, that game, because we all knew Tom was getting fired. I'm already covering the Colts, so it wasn't my team anymore. But the idea of Tom not coaching the Jaguars at that point was surreal. And because he had been the franchise. And I had always sort of assumed, very illogically, but it, it had always felt to me like he would always coach the franchise. Like he was an unfireable, of course, nobody's unfireable. But it was to the point, Pete, when I came back in 2011, I hadn't been inside the offices since I had left in 2001. And when I walked in in 2011, I, I couldn't have verbalized it, but I was walking around still looking for Tom to come down the hallway, ask me why I was in there. (laughs) What are you doing in here? Yeah, because that's how much in those early days they were inseparable. And it's every nope. coach and I'm gonna is say that, this. but he no. was in the walls, man. He was no. in the walls. Nobody, no coach in NFL history, and I'm saying including Belichick, had as much authority as Tom Coughlin had in the building. Belichick might have the football authority. Tom Coughlin had the entire building authority. Remember, he yeah, that's to, what it was. He used to complain about ticketing and this, and he'd, he'd worry about the dumbest stuff. <laughs> and he shouldn't, but he did. I'll give you, but by the without way. Without that, you don't get the rest. Yeah, you're with right. That. So that's, that's, I'll give you one guess. There's no way you're going to do it because I don't remember it, but the kicker for Jacksonville in that last game. Oh, man. It wasn't Scopes because he came around the next year. I got nothing. I got Danny nothing. Boyd. Danny Boyd. In a 32-yard field goal and a 23-yard <laughs> field goal. Yeah, we could have – there will be people who say that these podcasts uh, went on forever because we've talked a long time. We could have really gone on forever, and, and I never got Danny Boyd. No, uh, I, I don't remember Danny. I had left, but I don't remember Danny Boyd. Well, Pete – we could talk about the old Jag stuff forever, and I'm sure there's stuff we miss. But, uh, you know, we'll wrap it on that. And I certainly enjoyed this. Uh, I hope to do it again with you at some point. But I hope people enjoyed it because there was something really magical about those times. And it, it feels to me like even the people in the city who covered the – or not even who covered, but who watched those teams – sort of still feel it so hopefully listening to these people got a little insight and a little look back on them and Pete I appreciate you doing it. yeah and Baselli in the hall Tom Coughlin will be in the hall hopefully Fred will get there and maybe even Jimmy someday because all four of them deserve to be in the hall thing 
All four of them should be, no question. Pete, thank you, my friend. You got it. Take care. Dave, I'm always – I can talk to Pete all day about the Jag because obviously for five or six years, it was our life. We would talk to each other on the phone back when we had landline. Uh, We would talk to each other on the phone at 9.30 at night, 9.30 to 10 o'clock, talking about the next day, talking about what happened that day. So we lived it. It was our world in the way that the Jaguars now – is our world, the people who work in our in our department with the Jags. But I'm curious, when you're listening to Pete, you were a fan of this team growing up, and Pete covered him in the glory days. Do you remember anything about Pete that time, reading his stories? Were you aware of who he was? And if so, any memories of that time for you? Oh, yeah, I knew who Pete was. I, it's funny. Actually, I have two funny stories. It's like, you know, working in kind of, you know, I worked, worked at a local TV station before I worked for the Jaguars. And then before that, I worked all over the place, all over the country. And two times where I was just a little bit starstruck meeting a media guy was when I met, when I was in college and I went to school at UCF in Orlando, I met Mike Bianchi. I was like, Oh, it's Bianchi. I was like, (laughs) I used to read the Bianchi column all the time. And then the other was Pete Prisco. When I moved back to Jacksonville to work in 08 or 09, it was somewhere around the stadium, and I remember going, oh, I used to read you when I was a kid. And of course, he made some snide comment about me being young at the time or whatever. Right. But, but uh, yeah, I knew who Pete was. I read him all the time. Um, you know, you guys used to do at the Times Union, you used to guys put out, like, the special edition on Sundays. Right. Where I know you, which you worked on a lot. I remember, basically, I would read that cover to cover, um, you know, every <laughs> every Sunday morning and and uh, after that, and actually, Pete was on the radio forever in town here. Sure. And I remember listening to him him all the time then, then too. Um, like, and this is honest, which it sounds funny now since I've been in, around Pete now 11 years is in some capacity. It's like I was star, a little starstruck when I first met him because he, he was my, you, and and you're, you're kind of part of this. As a fan, they're your conduits to the team, right? They're cute. Sure who gives you the information and, and somehow you think they're on the inside, well, they're on the inside and it, you know, and they're right. as much as part of the team as, as the players on the team in some weird way. Pete always had a real grasp of that. My role at the time was a little different, obviously, than it is now. I covered the Jags and I was Pete's backup. But a lot of what I did, they would send me, like when they beat Denver in the playoffs that year in 96. Uh, the Times Union sent me to Denver. I flew out, I think, the Tuesday morning before the game, spent Wednesday, Thursday going to the Broncos. And it was it was a very fascinating time in my career. I did the same thing. I went to do a Rob Johnson story the first year he came back and played, the, uh, 97 or 98 after he'd been traded. It's a fascinating thing, and it's, in, it's incredibly satisfying professionally. But I wasn't really the Jaguars guy the way that Pete was. When you're the beat guy, there's something about that connection with the team. You're inside it every day. You're the one calling agents. You're the one dealing with it. And Pete always had a real awareness. He was a fantastic beat guy. I I learned more from him in five or six years. I was only on the Jaguars beat as the main guy a short time. But I've always respected the job Pete did in in knowing what the fans wanted to read, knowing how to get that information from the players, knowing how to go to the right people. It's, it's not, not rocket science. It's not the hardest job in the world, but people who do it well are a little different than the people who are just there doing it. Pete was fantastic. He had a way of working with players. And interesting thing about Pete, and this may be a little football 101 inside baseball, but that's what podcasts are all about. Pete was as much as Pete is a confrontational guy. And I think most people who've met Pete, he doesn't mind getting in an argument. He was great covering Tom Coughlin because he would not get intimidated. I was a young guy at the time. I was 25 or 26. If I had been on the beat alone, it would have taken me a few weeks, months, whatever, to really get used to dealing with Tom because he could intimidate people. I, I was a young guy, probably would have needed time to get used to that. Pete was ready, boy, and he never backed down with Tom. He was very good. But the thing about Pete that separated him from a lot of beat guys 
And maybe people who listen to him on the radio don't quite grasp that. He could be confrontational, but it was never personal with Pete, meaning a beat guy who gets into it with the head coach and then holds a grudge or a beat guy who won't go talk to the head coach after they've had a confrontation. Well, who does that hurt? That hurts the reader, right? Pete could, he had a knack. And even with Coughlin, I can remember times they would get into it. They would be yelling. We would walk the rubber hallway. For people who don't know, the media conferences were on one end of Everbank Field, or it was, it was Altal Stadium at the time, T.I. Bank Field now. And you'd walk this long rubber hallway, which I'm sure most Jaguar fans have heard reference to, and they'd get down to the coach's office. And it'd be a four- or five-minute walk. Maybe not that long, but a long walk. And they would argue. They'd beat each other's throats. Most of the time by the end, Pete would have Tom laughing about something. Or if it was over, Pete would laugh. Or he always knew that it was about getting the story. And he's deep down a really good guy. And you've been around the day. He can argue with Baselli. It's the reason Baselli and Prisco's show works. They can argue and argue and argue. But you know deep down there's a respect there. And you know that Pete gets it. He's having fun. He doesn't come out and rip for no reason you never get the idea that's malicious if you follow me like he's not trying to you, you know ruin careers or vendettas he just calls it as he sees it but again i think people can tell by my tone we go back a long ways one of my best friends in the business one of my best friends in the world i had a great time talking to him i think you know as you mentioned dave uh it's one that i think if we talk to pete on a podcast once a year I don't think it would ever get boring because he's a fascinating guy, fascinating stories. But the Pete Chris podcast sort of ends our off-season podcast, Dave. I mean, it's it, we've talked to Dave Caldwell. We've talked to Michael Silver, Peter King. Everything so far has had a very uh, off-season, COVID. The off-season is different than the regular season. It's off. It's different than the training camp. Now we're getting into training camp. I I believe our next podcast will be with Bucky Brooks, NFL Network. It's going to be a lot of football, a lot of now, a lot of stuff in the present. The podcast will change, Dave, because we're getting into this thing now. Yeah, whatever this thing's going to be. Um, right. You know, still feels like there's a lot yet to be determined. But, hey, players are in town. Players have gotten tested for COVID. Um, and then we'll kind of see what that leads to. Um it's it's weird. It uh, you probably can talk about this. It's it's weird. So just a little behind the curtains. Uh, some of our staff has gone back to the stadium. Uh, John and some other people are still working from home, so we're still divided, and we're doing this half virtually. And usually by now, we're much further into what our schedule is going to be and what practice is going to be, and all that kind of stuff. And that's still yet to be determined, but. I know as of now we're going to have a football season and we're going to have a training camp and we'll see what it is. I'm, it's weird. It's, I'm anxious a little bit, um, but I'm kind of excited. To, not excited. I'm interested to see what, what this is going to be and how different it's going to be and how different it's going to feel. Yeah. And I think Dave, you know, I get that it's so hard to, to me, anyway, it's so hard to get your mind around COVID and sports because so much about sports and everything you analyze, you have to draw from past experiences. And there's no past experience with this. So I kind of get how fans and observers and even the players who haven't really seen up close what teams are doing to prepare, I sort of get how there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of, well, this is never going to come off. You know, we're privileged a little bit, especially you guys, to be behind the curtain to see what teams are doing. For some reason, I have a higher confidence that this thing's going to work. I think it's going to be weird. I think there's going to be, there are going to be bubble points or whatever you call them where there are concerns. There's going to be, I don't call them crisis, but there's going to be moments to deal with. But I get the idea that they're going to be able to pull this off. They're going to be able to have a season. It, it, it's going to be incredibly, as you said, fascinating to follow. But I have a feeling, 
I don't have a feeling that we're ramping up for nothing. I have a pretty strong feeling that no matter how it takes place, uh, whoever's on the road with the team, whoever's doing it, however many COVID reserve lists there are, maybe, you know, you know me, Dave, I'm not really the eternal optimist, (laughs) but I just, I don't get the feeling that this is going to be a season cut short. I think, I think they're going to figure out a way to, way to make it work. And if you're going to look back on it and go, wow, what a weird, fascinating season. Sort of for me, I look back on the 95 season and think, boy, I, I, I was lucky to be there. It's a season unlike any other because of the expansion process. You get the feeling that you're never going to forget the COVID season. Yeah, I would agree with that. And right, like you said, it's like even being around the building and, and seeing some of the the protocols and processes that are in place, it does give me confidence. You know, it does give right. you – it sounds like they're trying to think of every angle on this. And, and I think a lot of, like, the delay and stuff is they're trying to use – every day, every minute, every hour to kind of figure out what the right way to do things are. Um, Well, and they have every day. That's the important thing to note here, Dave. You know, we're in a world where everybody wants answers now because of Twitter, because of social media. And I've had to answer a lot of my ozone questions, the the text ozone mailbag of, hey, you know, stay tuned on this one. We'll tell you when we know. And, you know, that's a lot of COVID because, they do have time to figure. It's not that they're not trying to figure it out. They're trying to get the best and right answer. There's no intentional fit, foot dragging, but you've got time. And I fully anticipate you have a better feel for it than I do because you've been in the building. I fully anticipate some of the protocols they've got now. When players get back in, they'll probably figure out something they want to do differently because they'll see something that doesn't work or that, hey, whoa. We could do this better. You better be able, I'm sure you've seen this since you've been back in, you better be able to adapt coming in at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning one day and something's different than it was the day before. And that's okay right now because you're trying to get the best answer. And I think the big thing too people are going to have to remember is like the preseason is going to be a different animal than the regular season. Home games are a different animal than than road games. And it's going to be the situation where you know, the NFL is so much about schedule and players being comfortable and coaches being comfortable with, okay, on Mondays right. I do this, on Tuesdays I do this, on Wednesday. And I think the team that adapts the best to change yeah. is going to do the best. Right. And yeah, I've been around teams where the, the routine, Coughlin was this way. Our media time, Dave, in 95, the, the last year after Coughlin was 2000. I showed up the exact same time to cover the team and left the exact same time six years later. They, I mean, a lot of coaches, regimes, they do the exact same thing day, year, month, whatever. NFL players, because of the number of people that are around, NFL teams have to do that. I agree with you. That will be the biggest thing that anybody associated with the NFL has to adjust to. Yeah, and then also I think it's a matter of – the team that manages COVID the best. It's like mm-hmm. if everyone follows the directions, follows the protocols they're supposed to do, wears masks, you know, social distances, they, they're responsible when they're not in the building. I think that's going to go a long way in deciding how successful you are this season. Yeah, the, the coach of the year trophy this year might have a little mask on it. <laughs> how you handle the whole thing, uh, you know, in, in the strike years, for example, I consider Joe Gibbs. I was a Redskins fan, so I was a Joe Gibbs fan growing up. I consider him the best coach in NFL history because he won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. But it's not a coincidence that they won in strike years because they handled – if you read about those teams, they handled the different things. They handled surprises all the players said better than anybody. That will certainly be a factor this year. Won't be so much X's and O's coaching. It'll be the coaches who can keep guys on the same page, keep that, you know, keep their hand on the rudder and keep the ship straight, if you will. So, well, obviously there's a lot. This has been a long Ozone podcast, uh, A, because I could talk to Pete forever, and B, because the second topic with the COVID, there's so much to cover. I know on all of our broadcasts we'll be – 
going in depth on this ad nauseum, but I want to thank fans who have listened so far to the first Ozone podcast. I think I'm happy with the way they've gone. I think we've had good guests. I want to thank everybody so far. Looking forward to get into the regular season routine. We're not quite sure what the training camp schedule with the Ozone podcast will entail. We know Bucky Brooks will likely be next week. Moving forward, we're going to try to get into this thing and make it as routine as possible until we get into a regular season routine. We'll keep you updated. I want to thank Joe Fortunato for making me sound better than I actually am. I want to thank Dave Buchanan. Hope we didn't suck, and we'll see you next week.